I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is Malcolm X. Listen as I speak with Sharif Lawaru, President and CEO of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation, about Malcolm X's life legacy and continuing relevance to issues affecting us today. We have injected ourselves into the civil rights struggle, and we intend to expand it from the level of civil rights to the level of human rights. As long as you, as long as you fight it on the level of civil rights, you're under Uncle Sam's jurisdiction. You're going to his court expecting him to correct the problem. He created the problem. He's the criminal. You don't take your case to the criminal, you take your criminal to court. Welcome to Lives. The theme of this week's show is Malcolm X. Joining me in conversation is Sharif Lawaru. Sharif is the Equity and Diversity Office Director for Omaha Public School District and is the President and CEO of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation. Sharif and his wife, Gabrielle Gaines Lawaru, are both community activists and also speak to interfaith issues, Sharif being a Muslim and his wife a Christian. Sharif, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here. I should point out that we are recording in the Mind and Soul 101.3 FM studio, which is housed in the Malcolm X Center. What is the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation and, and what's its mission? The Malcolm X Memorial Foundation is a community grassroots nonprofit organization. It is an organization designed to educate about Malcolm uh, and his life and his impacts on the world. And specifically, we work with um, making sure that in collaboration with those around the world who love and study Malcolm and follow in his uh, teachings, that uh, we are perpetuators of his uncompromising leaderships and contributions to social justice. And so anything that we do, we try to tie around those focal areas of how do we build more leaders in the community? How how do we get voice to those um, who may not understand their role as a community um, activist? And that community activist is not always the large title that people assume, but it's everybody putting in their part. Do you typically refer to Malcolm X as Malcolm, Malcolm X, or Malik El-Shabazz? Most common, Brother Malcolm, um, which is uh, partly because of uh, I've been involved with for so long and um, with the foundation and with his writings and things that uh, I feel a sense of endearment. Um, so the Brother Malcolm is most common. Um, Malcolm X referred to himself as Malcolm X, even post his pilgrimage to, ha- to, to the Hajj. And um, though he was transitioning into Al-Hajj Malik al-Shabazz, um, there were still interviews, correspondence, et cetera, referred to himself still as Malcolm X, um, recognizing that those, that's how people knew him and recognized him. And, um, and so in our mission statement officially is Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabazz, um, but most commonly referred to him as Malcolm X or Brother Malcolm. So perhaps just before we move on to Malcolm's life, mm-hmm. just talk a little bit about your role with the foundation and what is the nature of, of this building? Sure. So the role that I have now is the head of the Malcolm X Foundation, um, board president, and we're an all-volunteer organization, so there's a volunteer role of CEO as well in overseeing the uh, long-term visions of the organization and coordinating the day-to-day projects. But we're all 
hands-on involved in the foundation's work. So um, I can be seen here leading a class or or having a tour or out in the yard cutting down weeds and uh, mowing the lawn. I mean, it's a volunteer uh, base. I've been in the organization for probably about 23 years. Um, so uh, my first role was second vice president of the Malcolm X Foundation back when I was 17 and I'm 42. So that's that's a substantial amount of time. I think that's how come I, they put me as president, to be honest with you. I had been here the longest. <laughs> Just waited <laughs> everybody else out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we have a variety in our, our organization. Um, and as evidenced by me being a second vice president at 17, it, the age Span is broad within our organization, and the hierarchy is not always in those who are the eldest, but their um, advice is valued and involved. So we have members in their 70s all the way down to some younger ones in their 20s. So um, the building here allows us a hub for doing our community outreach piece. A lot of community Meetings happen here when the community wants to talk about a particular issue. They know that this center is available for that cultural uh, education related to the the culture of both uh, North Omaha um, individuals, but as well as African-Americans in the diaspora. So maybe throughout the city or even um, uh, contextually throughout the country in history. And um, a lot of our focus is on African history and an Afrocentric approach to the work that we do. And um, the radio station allows us a, a voice uh, in getting the words out of our community to the public. And so um, this is a major part of the work that we do as well. So our, this is the first facility that we had. Organization was founded in 71, and we got this facility in the end of 2010. So we were operating with just land <laughs> before having a building. So, But, of course, there's a, a pedigree uh, given the, the history of uh, Malcolm X's life. So he was born Malcolm Little, 19th of May, 1925, but he was born here in Omaha. Correct. As a matter of fact, his home uh, would have been right outside of this building on the land that we own as well. So this address of our facility here is um, given that because of the address of his home. And so, yeah, this is this is stomping grounds number one for Malcolm when his family was here in Omaha. What I'd like to do uh, for this show is to explore maybe some, some themes around Malcolm's life, uh, themes such as comparing the movement of nonviolence perhaps is more commonly understood around Martin Luther King and others from the 60s compared with the more sort of polemic attitudes that may be associated with with Malcolm. Uh, issues around uh, segregation, integration, or maybe even sort of pan-Africanism mm-hmm. um, and the relevance of that possibly today. Um, and then maybe also thinking about the role of religion too because it's well known that Malcolm had his own spiritual journey, which I think is is relevant to today as well. So to get us into the swing of this, I want to use a couple of his well-known speeches. One is message to the grassroots and the other is uh, ballot or the bullet. And maybe play a few excerpts just to open, open up that conversation for us. So first I'm going to play a, um, a clip from Malcolm X's speech, message to the grassroots. It was delivered on November 10th, 1963, to an audience at King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit. So I cite these various revolutions, brothers and sisters, to show you, you don't have a peaceful revolution. You don't have a a, a turn-the-other-cheek revolution. There's no such thing as a nonviolent revolution. 
only thing, only kind of revolution that's nonviolent is the Negro Revolution. The only revolution based on loving your enemy is the Negro Revolution. The only revolution in which the goal is a desegregated lunch counter, a desegregated theater, a desegregated park, and a desegregated public toilets. You can sit down next to white folks on the toilet. <laughs> Whoever heard of a revolution where they lock arms, as Reverend Cleek was pointing out beautifully, singing, We Shall Overcome? <laughs> Just tell me, you don't do that in a revolution. You don't do any singing, you're too busy swinging. What I find really interesting about that is that that was months before the ballad or the bullet. We'll hear some of that later. But that kind of language, I think, seems terrifying. And I'm sure it seemed terrifying to uh, the authorities, to white people at the time. But it really seems to, I think, obviously strike a chord with an audience that had suffered the brutality of, of that era. But I'm wondering about the relevance of this today. And I'm thinking about the comparison between uh, the rise of the alt-right and um, the reaction to, uh, to the use of violence. And I, I'm just wondering how relevant that seems today to you. One of the things for me when I heard that when I was young was how American it sounded. The Ballad of the Bullet um, being one, and as you said, we'll, we'll hear some clips from that one. But with this one in particular, um, it was th that he just articulated the American way. We don't like to hear about that in our own context, but think of of uh, the context of post 9-11 conflict that we're still in. Someone put their hands on us and we've been sending a lot of people to the cemetery. And uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the people who inflicted against us. And if you picture before that with um, uh, Saddam Hussein, in the, uh, you know, he has the capacity to potentially um, do harm and he said some words that were anti-American so he's our enemy and we fight so um, when you picture a situation where this is not speculation but you know our people have dealt with the um, impacts of the brutality of um, American system that had been rooted in racism to hear those who you have been able to successfully oppress 
speak very clearly about how that time has ended is extremely scary. Within the nation of Islam, there are numbers that people were not aware of and they couldn't find anybody inside that could tell them the numbers that they were facing. And are they planning on having a terrorist attack against us? And of course, it's terrorist if if it's not America doing it. And so um, I found that to be extremely powerful when I was younger to kind of hear the perspectives. And one of the things that were an outcome of that, if you were to Google Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, you will probably find a lot of violent images. You will find police dogs on kids. You will find water hoses by the fire department, billy clubs against people's head, people in lunch counters being bashed over head, spit on, punched in the face. Um, you find that with the uh, Freedom Riders and, you know, being, you know, tried to burn some of them alive inside of a bus. And you find all of these violent images one thing that if you put in Malcolm X, you will not find that you will have him or any member of the Nation of Islam in the same image with violence. It was the clarity of, as he mentioned um, and was getting to the, an eye for an eye, um, that if you put your hands on us, we'll send you to a cemetery. So he was well believed in that you have no incidences of violence um, when the Nation of Islam was gathered or um, against Malcolm or his people when they were um, advocating for independence, they would do so by demanding and taking in. So I think that's interesting. I think this was a very alarming message to hear from people who you have counted on um, to be able to oppress and you're no longer able to, and then to wonder how many people feel the same way. Um, and um, I think reminiscent historically for a lot of people was Nat Turner. And that was the, the, the last person in, in, you know, maybe their grandparents' memory. They were there like, I remember some folks talking like this and this is how it ended. <laughs> and so when you have someone in these times with, greater ability and mobility to be able to have firearms to, um, you know, that um, integration had already taken place to some extent. And then to understand that, what do you mean they don't like us, was a shock to a lot of people. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Sweaty, 
calls to mind that, that James Baldwin was a, a friend of Malcolm X and his writings, I think, are echoed now with Ta-Nehisi Coates mm-hmm. and some of his, his speeches, his, his writings too. And that idea of this assault in particular on what he terms the black body. Maybe the difference now just seems to be that we have a 21st century social media lens on what I think to many people just looks like 50 years ago. The comparisons are are scary in that you can juxtapose so many images between what was happening then and what was happening now. And I'm curious about how people interpret the parallel because really there's some context in which you're saying we have not moved forward. If you picture images from Ferguson and images from the the Watts riots and how they look similar and um, we're talking about police brutality, you can play Malcolm's speeches about police brutality and and wonder about those things still happening today. Um, But at the same time, it's about recalibrating that next level of progress. So the type of things that we set in the play 50 years ago about um, advancements as a people, many of them have been made. But as we've gotten here, we realized that there needs to be even further advancement made. And that's where a lot of people are saying, but we already are here. You told us you needed this. You have that. What could you be upset about? And you can only see so far when you are in a position of um, powerlessness that you set your goals for one step at a time. And um, I think there's many who feel it's unfair that the people are trying to recalibrate. Also, the social media brings up that where there were, let's say, in a given summer, 300 lynchings of black people by the hands of mobs or police officers or law enforcement that number may be a third of that or even smaller, but every so many of them get full exposure because of social media to where um, we're talking about it at the same intensity we were before. Um, and as many will say in the community, law enforcement as well as those in the community, any of these wrongful deaths are too many. A police officer will tell you that as quickly as someone in the community, although their perspectives may differ on which one of those were wrongful. That social media aspect allows any ignorant comment to be broadcast widely and catch flames and and ignite an already volatile situation, as well as every aspect of of positive conversation and solution and um, good story gets to be put out there and broadcast as well. It's just that the nature of news is that we cannot get to a point where the bad news becomes standard, where you don't even report it. I grew up in California, Los Angeles. They wouldn't report all the murders. It'd have to be a child involved or a lot of people involved because there was just so much of it at the time. Um, In Omaha, we report every single one because they're each of them so surprising, even though it happens, uh, it's not the norm. And so therefore you hear about every one and you think, well, how violent we are in our community. And it's just because every single one of them is broadcast. So the nature of that reality to me shows that there's progress that's being made in so many different areas. But unfortunately, that progress can be a crippling factor for folks who think we've 
made it already. And then um, the folks who are complaining are not being grateful. <laughs> um, so I, I think that the um, there's so much that ties in and so much that's parallel and so much to learn from, which is why I think so many people are still following the words and times of Malcolm because of how his approach um, brought to bear how folks felt is what he said and he didn't sugarcoat it for anyone. So he spoke it. If it was a truth that he knew, he spoke it. We have to look back and tie in and gather and pull from that history in order to be able to move forward. If we don't, we wind up uh, imitating what happened in the past, but not understanding the goals that we're trying to accomplish. There's an interesting counterpoint now, I think, in terms of some of these um, festering issues still existing. And, you know, I mentioned that there has been, in what is meant to be this uh, post-racial period after Barack Obama was president, now we're seeing with the election of Donald Trump this rise in hate crime and uh, rise in the so-called alt-right. And it, again, it seems to be relevant as a counterpoint when one thinks about the early earlier Malcolm before uh, he, he reinvented some of his own views. And in particular, I'm thinking about, again, message to the grassroots when he's referencing the uh, Bandon Conference, which was a meeting of Asian and African states, uh, most of which were newly independent, having thrown off the shackles of colonialism. That conference took place uh, in 1955 in Bandung, Indonesia. Uh, the 29 countries that participated at the uh, conference represented nearly one quarter of the Earth's land surface and a total population of 1.5 billion people, uh, which is more uh, than half the world's population at that time. Um, so let's play this clip from the message of the grassroots speech when Malcolm X remarks upon the, the Bandung conference. The number one thing that was not allowed to attend the Bandung conference was the white man. He couldn't come. Once they excluded the white man, they found that they could get together. Once they kept him out, everybody else fell right in and fell in love. This is the thing that you and I have to understand. And these people who came together didn't have nuclear weapons. They didn't have jet planes. They didn't have all of the heavy armaments that the white man has. But they had unity. They realized all over the world where a dark man was being oppressed, he was being oppressed by the white man. Where the dark man was being exploited, he was being exploited by the white man. So they got together under this basis that they had a common enemy. There's still a, a resonance to this today even though he changed his own views to some to some degree as as time evolved and i'm just wondering how you reflect on on those comments it's very exciting to hear about unity about individual communities coming together uh, who have been poised against each other potentially and or um, have not traditionally worked together. And to hear that on a global scale with multiple countries is just really powerful. And I think that the challenge that happens is that those who are not invited are in a state of fear. You cannot probably, I cannot name uh, a circumstance where they've been able to bring that type of level of uh, number of countries together uh, absent any of the um, European or American nation. 
Uh, so whether it's the United States or any of the European nations that uh, get together and, and talk about things that are happening in the world, uh, so much has been intertwined to where even when you pull those individuals together, so many of those countries are still interdependent this many decades later on those countries to where you cannot speak ill of those countries um, because you're not provided opportunities for growth, but um, just enough assistance to keep you dependent. And so it's a de facto kind of colonization and high time for another summit that says, how do we free ourselves from this? Um, we have so many resources on the African continent uh, in terms of just mineral wealth and, and um, uh, development opportunities and in some of the uh, developing Asian countries where the human capital and the people that are there and the technological advances, but no plan on how to make that a unifying effort. I know that China is working more and more within African countries, Kenya being one of them, but there are other countries as well. And they're helping with developing infrastructure. And um, there's a mutual benefit to those countries. And, and I don't know if that's an exploitative one yet or, or one in which they are empowering. I do love to hear that idea of unity. I would imagine that it's uncomfortable to hear that you're not invited because you are the oppressor. And I think in juxtaposition, as you said, to the growing sentiment that he had where white people are not the devil by birth. However, uh, one's actions uh, dictate how they are categorized. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Stuart Chittenden and my guest today is Sharif Lawaru. I think you really touched on something there in terms of this this movement 
more towards one of uh, unity. And I think maybe Malcolm X is perhaps unfairly more well known for his earlier polemics around the idea of uh, separation. And that shifted, I think, to some degree, not completely, but it, it shifted in its context once he'd been on the Hajj. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about what the Hajj is and maybe how that impacted Malcolm X's viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So the Hajj is um, one of the five pillars of Islam and is uh, expected of every Muslim once in their lifetime if they're able to afford it. Uh, and physically able to go. And so Muslims all, all over the world travel to uh, Mecca, um, and it is a pilgrimage, and the pilgrimage is in honor of um, Abraham and um, his family. And so when going there, Ma uh, Brother Malcolm ran into people of all different skin complexions, hair colors, eye color what in America would be called white or uh, most of the world, I would suppose. So Latinos, Asians, um, folks who were uh, European, all over the African continent, all over the uh, Asian continent, the Arab, Middle Eastern, just the whole spectrum. And his interactions with them greatly differed than his interaction with those same individuals, particularly uh, European white uh, descendants, it completely differed. There was none of this hierarchy feeling of um, because I'm white, I'm better than you. So white became a descriptor as it used to be before we as mankind created. Uh, and I say we, but not meaning me, but um, created race. And so it was a descriptor. So if I'm going to describe you, I would as quickly describe you as white as I would you being tall. It's to differentiate. You have a pair of glasses on, tall guy. That's it. OK, so now differentiate between, you know, someone else. So your skin color was a matter of a description, not as a hierarchy. And that came from Islam. And so his view was recognizing that it could not be that white people were inherently the devil because he ran into white people who treated him not only as an equal, but um, extremely brotherly. Um, so in the part of the process within the Hajj, one of the nights, um, people actually sleep out in the open on mats or on the bare ground. And so at the time he was going, you may have probably had about 300,000 people would go. Now it's closer to two or three million. And still, same process. You're out on the floor, world's largest sleepover. Just Guinness is not allowed to go there <laughs> uh, to mark it down. But you have that brotherhood. You're in tents that may hold 40 people, and you the food is brought in, and all of you are eating at the same food table. This this level of brotherhood, where folks the way they treated him, excuse me, when they bumped into him, and just there's just so many different expectations we have in the United States that did not exist there. For some of them, they may have gone home and that same thing may not have applied to even their society. But where they were at here on a religious common ground, everyone was family. Part of the Hajj attire is um, two white pieces of cloth in which you don't know if a person usually wears an Armani suit or this was the fancy thing for them, these two new white towels that I'm wearing. And so that even breaks down some of those social barriers. So what he felt when he came back was, America, y'all racists. <laughs> still and the white people you're still racist but not by birth so my approach to this is different we're talking about a human rights issue 
um, versus a, a white versus black. This is about human beings and about how you've been conditioned um, by those who came before you to believe that you are superior and you've bought into that. And why not? It's a kind of if they're going to shake the dice and you come out on top, why fight that system? And so his thought was that if everybody embraced Islam, you would eliminate these issues that we're facing within the United States. So it, it seems that that informs, for example, his shift in view from one that was quite segregationist to one that accepted that African-Americans could and should have a voice in the civic institutions that, that previously he'd been saying we should have no part of. Mm-hmm. And, and to that end, let's play a clip from the speech, Ballot or the Bullet, where he talks about, he talks about this. I'm one of the 22 million black victims of the Democrats. One of the 22 million black victims of the Republicans and one of the 22 million black victims of Americanism. And when I speak, I don't speak as a Democrat or a Republican. I speak as a victim of America's so-called democracy. You and I have never seen democracy. All we've seen is hypocrisy. So in a way, in that speech, he's, he was warning about the implications of, hence the title, Ballot or the Bullet, that there were people being excluded from the democratic process. And I think he was saying this has consequences. He wasn't necessarily advocating for violence, but he was certainly was saying you can't exclude people from this democratic process. But in so doing, he was also saying we should and could take part in this. But that brings to mind again that question about how relevant is that today when we see Supreme Court decision after Supreme Court decision talking about the Voting Rights Act and, and how it's no longer applicable, while at the same time seeing a rise in gerrymandering, while we're seeing a rise in race-based voter suppression? And it seems even more particular today that, again, we're turning back to this idea of exclusion. Indeed. I think that it's interesting because... You mentioned this as a, a change in in views and approach. Uh, earlier, uh, we talked about, you know, Malcolm's view was that there you you cannot have a bloodless revolution. Revolu- revolutions are bloody, and so this concept of you know we shall overcome and singing along and this is not what a revolution looks like. But he came to realize he said, you know, we may be able to make history here, not just U.S. history, but the history of mankind. We may be able to have a revolution. And that's where the ballot or the bullet came from, the bullet being the bloody revolution, the ballot being the revolution using the existing system, which when it allows the people to actually vote, then it becomes a system that you can use to overturn it. He recognized that if all of the people who you were preventing from voting were to be able to vote, then the rest of America split pretty 50-50. So if those 22 million black people in America were to vote in block, whoever they voted for would win, which is evident in uh, elections during the time. And uh, he would bring up, he said, you put them in office and, and you placed them on that ballot or you placed them at the top of that ballot for you, but they looked out for you last. So they got all kinds of other legislation out of the way. And now they're talking about these rights for you. And so he talked about that. I think now people do not realize because the polls seem open, um, folks will go and vote. 
that uh, they don't recognize how many of the votes are taken away after they have left the polls. You don't know that your vote got thrown out. People are not aware of how many people in the community show up at their voting poll place and it is gone. Yeah, we, we eliminated a lot of polling places uh, in Omaha a number of years back. And that was done in the black community heavier than any other community. There were reasons that were put out. Well, they you you know, the community doesn't vote as much, so we don't need as many polling places. Um, but having a closer polling place is important. If you are in a place that doesn't have as much transportation, you don't have as many vehicles. A lot of people are, are without that transportation to go to the farther places. And so um, by removing those, you removed access. So there's so many different things that take place. Even looking in our own area again, if you were to look post Obama coming onto the scene and where we were at before his first election and where we are at today, um, whether it be the voting lines and gerrymandering and that sort of taking place, uh, whether it be the number of polling places that are open in communities that voted for Obama to be in office. There's so many different things that have changed and take place, which people will say, well, there was another reason for that. That is just something I, I don't accept as, as incidental because there's always been some way of trying to suppress a vote. And um, I remember one conversation I was having with a congressman and, and about voting rights, uh, voting rights for those who um, were uh, Latinos in here uh, in the country. And there's a path of citizenship. And, and I told him we can't accept path of citizenship that doesn't include the vote. He was like, you know, maybe we could have path of citizenship, but it can't include the vote. And I said, as an ancestor of people who you did that to in the past of, yes, you are citizens, but you don't have the vote. I can't accept that. Um, it has to be the vote. If you're, you're either a citizen and a citizen's right is to vote or you're just here. And uh, he was saying I was doing it to get more uh, votes on one side of the aisle. And I said, well, if you were to do this, then guess who would they be? Thank who would they be particularly thankful to? And if people forget that, you know, black people in America were Republicans for a long time. Why? Because Lincoln was Republican. And he signed the Emancipation Proclamation, despite the fact that he may not have if he had any other choice, but he did. And so you got a right to vote. You registered Republican. You do what's right. And if it's right that if you're a citizen, you vote, then you should be able to I'll say the same thing for uh, those who are incarcerated. Um, I don't believe voting rights being taken away from you because you're incarcerated. Right now, we were talking about being able to reinstate it after you serve your sentence. I, for one, don't, didn't see why it was taken in the first place. As uh, a community, when you do not feel as if you have a voice, you will resort to other methods. And that's where the ballot or the bullet resonates. You, you restrict people from being able to speak in one voice. They will find another voice in which to speak in. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can come 
make it sound Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see You practice as an observing Muslim. Yes. And Malcolm X had his own spiritual journey in that regard. I'm just wondering how your own spirituality and practice of your faith is informed by, inspired by, or otherwise guided by uh, Malcolm X at all. Honestly, the first descriptions I had of the pilgrimage were from the autobiography of Malcolm X. And um, then uh, my father had gone as well. And so it brought it back to context. When he went, I was very, very young or not here yet. Um, it was a, just in the early to mid seventies is what I remember. And so I, I don't recall exactly the timing of it. So there, I knew that he had gone, but I hadn't really spoken to him about that until after reading the autobiography and just the beauty of that sense of human beings, Malcolm, more than anything, I think brought that sense of we are human beings. And so I call people brother and sister and it'll throw people off, you know, because they'll think I'm talking in the context of a black person, brother, or sister, which I do, but in addition, anybody could fit that that description because I do feel a kinship with people. But I also understand the racial constructs that have been created by us as Americans. So um, we've created something, but that doesn't make it any less real. Racism exists, bias exists, and we are all we are all a part of that. And so I, I often have used the quote I heard from someone, every snowflake in an avalanche pleads not guilty. And so if we are in this country, we may be able to say we aren't perpetuating racism or ethnocentrism with a European uh, ethnicity being the, the center point, but we do, and we do in so many different ways. So for Malcolm, talking about those things in very stark ways, and then it's his pursuit of truth that Islam teaches us to to learn have faith and do good works and then know what you have your convictions in question yourself enough to challenge yourself to be able to explore farther and farther so from Malcolm's perspective he brought to me this idea of pursue knowledge all the time because you can add up truth and still come to a conclusion that's not accurate which was his life. His father killed by, you know, white people, chased out of the clan by white people. He grew up in a foster home that they talked directly in front of him. It wasn't a, I think white people think. This is the, the very racist and derogatory things. All the way to his older years with the water hoses, the dogs, and everything that you've seen in civil rights, he saw this. There was no question about the evidence about whether or not white people were the devil. It was very clear. Uh, historically, Roman Empire, very clear. Colonization of the African continent and, and the, uh, the clearing of Native peoples from 100% to 99% gone in the U.S. Evidence, 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 evidence. But he still drew a conclusion based on that, that it took further exploration to realize that we have created this structure that put one group of people in front of another and it wasn't by birth. 
So Malcolm's perspective of pursuit of knowledge is what I take from him uh, all the time. So I'm always trying to learn and grow and challenge what I believe to be true and um, not be afraid of when I find out something that I've believed in is not accurate. And that's difficult to do. But, um, you know, it's like Malcolm did it so I can do it. And he faced the entire world to say so. That's a hard bit as well to come back from this ideology that the whole United States or world knows you by and to say I was incorrect. Let me recalibrate my um, perspectives and uh, move forward from that point. I think that's a fascinating observation that in the last years of his life, he shifted and adapted and was quite open about his progress. And that, as you say, that ability in modern times to be able to show to people transparently the personal growth that you're going through seems to be missing, especially from people in leadership positions. We also don't let them. Uh, you picture Malcolm earlier on also talked a lot about his criminal record and background in drugs. I mean, he was in drugs and I mean, the only people you hear doing that now are preachers um, who go back and say, look, you know, if you, you look at me as this person on this pedestal and perfect, but I was where you were or worse. Like, you know, some of the stories you're like, wow, I must have some room for redemption because I wasn't doing all of that. But to hear someone in a leadership position, political leadership, if you want to call it that, that was a big deal. Whereas now we do not let people get away with anything. So you are not as open about change or feeling. People call you wish-washy and you're flipping back and forth on an issue. And it's really sometimes just growth, not like, a, you know, so you learn something new and now you have a different perspective. And then someone says, wait, 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 they've derailed you. They gave you some information to take you off path, but this is the full information. You're like, oh, well, I was right in the first place. And you go back, but we won't let folks do that. So we hold our leaders up to an expectation that I think we shouldn't. Morally, we always should. Um, but in terms of ideologies and what they're growing and learning with, you don't want someone who comes into office and um, has the same views when they leave office. Um, you know, it, it, for those of us who are married, we recognize that we're not the same people who we were when we got married. We just hopefully that growth nicely moves side by side as you both grow. But it's it's something that that we don't allow. Uh, we, we're too hard on, I think, leaders when it comes to their exploration of their ideologies and beliefs and feel as if there's no way you could believe this when you used to believe that. And since we don't, then people are more likely to not even explore it. So I think that's one example why Malcolm X remains relevant as an illustration of why his message and his life is still so important to us today. My final question for you is to ask, why does it seem that notwithstanding that comment, that Martin Luther King Jr. seems to be a more palatable figure in contemporary sociocultural reference? So why is Martin Luther King Jr. apparently more acceptable than the Malcolm X? Mm -hmm. It's an interesting perspective because I've asked that uh, folks, our Facebook group has about 520,000 fans on it. And so we try to interact and get, you know, conversations going. And um, of course, I'm asking a group of people who are Malcolm X fans, but <laughs> so their views are, are going to be leaning that way. But really what I think it is, is first of all, Martin Luther King in his day was a revolutionary, wanted by the political establishment, uh, hated by the political establishment, 
assassinated uh, by the same, by many accounts, that this is somebody who was on the list of, we need this guy gone. And so both individuals are revolutionaries. So as America began to embrace Martin Luther King, a lot of it came from his wife pushing for that. But it was done through, in, in terms of American society embracing him, was this dichotomy of pushing Malcolm is violence, Martin is peace. Malcolm, uh, or excuse me, Martin Luther King just decided that he wasn't going to go that route. Not that he didn't, he, he actually even vocalized in some of his letters, writings, and speeches, I don't think this will work, but I'm just not willing to be violent. And the dichotomy between them, one who was willing to, didn't have to be, but willing to, and the other one not willing to, provided this balance for the movement. And there's always been balance. Um, A. Philip Randolph and, and Marcus Garvey or um, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington. And, you know, you always have this pair of individuals with ideologies that are going toward the same piece, but different frames of it. So Martin Luther King becomes the, it's easy to nutshell him into a nice, soft, I have a dream speech. And we'll all skip down the lane together, holding hands, hugging each other and whatever, except for if it's my daughter, don't be hugging my daughter. You know, like we look at the exceptions of even people who are like, oh, yeah, Martin Luther King, I have a dream. But picture Martin Luther King Day. You know, I, you ask the average person what they do on that day is not celebrating Martin Luther King. And those that do are at lunch. They do a luncheon or uh, a service, whatever. They're not actually doing the work of Martin Luther King. So it really becomes this imagery icon that can easily be put up and framed as um, palatable. When in his time, he was um, uh, totally the revolutionary. I would also say with them being Christian, that helps as well in the United States, which is predominantly Christian versus Muslim. And so here's someone who's Muslim, uh, someone who speaks straight and who says, if you slap me, I slap you back. And someone else who says, I'm going to kill you with kindness. You know, I'm going to overwhelm you, quote, overwhelm you with our capacity to love, which I think sounds beautiful. I just don't have that much capacity. I got a lot of love in me, but I don't know about overwhelming amounts. And so I think it becomes more acceptable because of the message that you're able to frame him into is this peaceful, let's all get along. And if you had the choice of two employees uh, and one you were going to fire and one you're going to keep, you're going to go with the one who compliments you all the time and talks well of you and says, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, no matter what you say is right. Um, hey, you know what? I don't want you to do this, but if you decide to do that, that's okay. Um, versus the other one who's telling you all about yourself, truth, but I'd rather go with the person who gasses me up. And people summarize him into that. I would say it's an unfair summarization of uh, Martin Luther King, but um, is often put into that, I'll add one thing that, that Malcolm said that really, I thought was one of the, a really good, good argument was, can you really trust someone who is fighting a battle for you and the enemy gives them a award for peace? And he had won the Nobel Peace Prize in the middle, Peace Prize in the middle of a battle for civil rights. So he's like, if we're in the middle of a revolution and your general gets awarded a peace prize from the enemy, can you really trust him? And I thought that was harsh. Sometimes Malcolm would say things you like, ooh, that hurts. That's where it lies into the, the idea of one of these individuals is willing to put up with us 
uh, and we can summarize them into the a nutshell of we have a dream um, versus his uh, letter from Birmingham jail, which articulately expresses a little bit more of his emotions. listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Sharif, I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge, your personal work, the nature of the work here, and your interest and passion about Malcolm X. Thank you for being here. And thank you for having me on. This has been really, really good. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. Mm -hmm.